Welcome to Thrive Spice, a podcast centered on the Asian American mental health experience while navigating career, family, wellness, and social empowerment. I'm your host, Vanessa Tsung Shiliwala, a business leader and entrepreneur, mother, and award-winning AAPI and mental health advocate. Join me as I invite diverse business and political leaders, entrepreneurs, and creators to share their real, raw mental health journeys and practical advice on how they found their Thrive Spice, the joy that comes from finally owning our identity, power, and worth. Also, I want to hear from you. Please follow me at Thrive Spice on Instagram for videos and more mental health tips. Please feel free to send me a DM or voice note. And if you prefer to watch your podcast, check us out on YouTube or Instagram at Thrive Spice. The link is in the show notes. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe. All right, let's get ready to unpack some feelings and spill the tea. Mernal Gokli is our guest today on Thrive Spice. She's an author and speaker with a passion for the human brain. She uses her voice to help shift the narrative around health and wellness. She recently published Saya Unveiled, a book that shares true stories of second-generation South Asian immigrants and their mental health journeys. Topics covered are stigma, identity, trauma, and access, along with the goal of promoting acceptance and knowledge around mental health between generations. Really happy to have you as a guest on our podcast. I'm so glad you reached out and shared your story with me, and I can't wait to share your story with so many others who uh, I think really will be inspired by your journey. So you're someone who's described yourself as good at your job, as a journalist, you have friends, you're very creative, you're, you're a designer, belly dancer, jujitsu junkie, occasional model, someone who has this very rich life. And you have also uh, found in your journey that uh, you're neurodivergent and simple interactions like small talk can be kind of awkward or painful. So I'm curious, what are your earliest memories of knowing that you were different? And can you share how your experience being neurodivergent affected your mental health journey? So my earliest experiences of feeling quote unquote different include things like in school, having difficulty making friends, wanting to be social, but not knowing how to do so, having trouble with things like you said, like small talk, like quote unquote, simple engagement, um, wanting human company, but not a lot of it in class, things like being one of the only kids that was left without, um, like a partner for like group activities, only being invited to things like birthday parties. If I was invited with the whole rest of the class, that kind of thing. Yeah, that all sounds painful and I can definitely empathize with feeling left out and feeling different. And I know that you also grew up in the Midwest and I'm also from the Midwest. And there's just to add to that layer, there's not a lot of Asian Americans out there. And so we tend to already feel like an amplified sense of not really belonging or not really being like everybody else. So I can only imagine that was magnified by what you were going through. And can you share how you came to recognize that it was more than just you know, feeling a little bit left out or different. What was your journey like in kind of discovering this part of yourself? I would say that throughout my school career, so to speak, I just felt like 
I think my instinct told me it was something a little bit more than things like being just shy or having to just try a little harder and all these other just that people put on to me. But I wasn't able to quite put my finger on it for obvious reasons. And my family never thought to ask a professional what it was. And um, neither did anyone in the school system. So then basically, I kind of just by chance took it on into my own hands when I became an adult and went to college. So tell me a little bit more about that. What happened? Was there a certain, you know, experience or memory you have of that falling into place and deciding to seek help or some kind of diagnosis? Yeah. So I didn't even think that I, I never even thought of therapy as like an option, like as a kid and stuff, because it's like the few people I knew went to therapy were like white American children because maybe mommy and daddy forced them or the school system said, your kid's disrupting my class, put them on Ritalin or don't bring them back or forced by the juvenile court system, that kind of stuff. I thought therapy was like a hardcore luxury for the rich type of thing beyond that. However, one day when I was in college, about 20, 21 years old, I was just walking through the student union, minding my own business. And then someone at one of the tables said, would you like to take a free depression screening? And without knowing what I'm getting myself into, I simply said yes. And after that little assessment, they said, you seem to have high markers in the area of generalized anxiety disorder and social anxiety disorder. And they said, our student clinicians are graduate students pursuing degrees in psychology. They are being supervised by, by real clinicians. Um, would you like to work with one for just $5 a session? And so that sounded like there was little to nothing to lose too. So I said, sure. And from there, it took right off. Well, that's amazing that that uh, resource was so accessible for you in college. And I think what stands out to me there is that, to your point, it's so hard to feel like you have access as an adolescent, both from, you know, the culture and what you see around you and this idea that, yeah, it's either for the really rich and privileged or for the kind of problematic children, you know, as, as more of like a, a solution to kind of fix that rather than even just preventative or just um, just normal, right? It, right. It benefit everybody. Yeah, I agree. Can you tell me a little bit more about your passions? You're this kind of multifaceted person. I would love to hear more about, you know, you as a designer and model and belly dancer and all of that. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that? So my belly dancing journey started partly in high school, um, just taking a couple classes and uh, taking some classes then and then throughout college. And then I started really performing maybe in my mid 20s. And then I actually haven't done anything since COVID because that really had put a damper on it. At some point, I want to get back into it. I'm doing YouTube videos for fun, but ever since COVID, instead of belly dancing, I've been taking hip hop classes. I think that the reason I'm connected to dance as a whole is because I'm a, somewhat of a kinesthetic person in that way when it comes to things like artistic endeavors. Yes, I have trouble with things like clumsiness and coordination and visual spatial issues, but I guess that, you know, when I was young, um, I would just get a rush from when I saw like these sexy, confident looking chicks in the music videos dancing. And it's something that I wanted to do for myself. And I found out that, you know, I think that people's image of someone like a performer is someone who's outgoing, extroverted, highly charismatic. And that held me back initially. But then after taking some lessons and stuff, I learned that doesn't have to, it's not just one persona that fits like being a performer. And I think that that's what I like is I feel like performing is somewhat of a release to me and a confidence booster and a workout all in one. 
Absolutely. That was so well said. I totally can understand that. And I do think that um, I'm also a bit of an introvert. And I do think that when you're able to express yourself in different modalities, it is really empowering. And it shows us that, yes, you don't have to be the loudest voice in the room always to make your presence known. And so I, I really love that you've incorporated that into your own expression and your journey. I'm curious, you know, kind of reflecting on the book that you wrote. Congratulations, by the way. Um, this is such an important piece of work. I've really enjoyed reading it. It's called Saya Unveiled. And it's a story of an anthology, really, of many different South Asian stories. And frankly, I could identify with so many of their journeys and just bits and pieces here and there. And I found that, you know, I'm not South Asian myself, but my husband is and we have half Indian children. And so there is this kind of like cultural learning that happens when you are in an interracial partnership. And so, you know, a lot of my own mental health journey has been impacted by literally being married to someone of that culture. But I did see a lot of reflections of not just South Asian culture, but also East Asian culture you know, in a lot of the kind of storylines and the stigmas and attitudes around mental health. And I'm curious, you know, how did that journey start? And was there a story or a person who really resonated with you or even think about or their journey inspires you still to this day? Um, This started because I took a free memoir writing course during quarantine and the person who taught it taught us about book publishing and then she sent us resources like publishing houses as well as teaching us about self-publishing such as through Amazon Kindle and I coincidentally shortly later met someone who published via Amazon Kindle who did sell that process to me and basically I just kind of thought about different things I'm passionate about and that I would like to write about. And one of those things was psychology and the human brain and how that's kind of the root to why my human brain is the root to why I'm so fascinated and want to logically and break down and understand human behaviors and emotions and why people do the things they do, what makes them tick. Mm-hmm. And that made me think, you know, I don't know a lot of South Asians that have mental health journeys to share. I feel like if it is, it's probably just not talked about much. And I would love to expose that if that's the case. So I literally just Googled South Asian mental health and all these organizations came up. I did a search on hashtags on Instagram and there was just so much content out there. And I reached out to orgs and said, I was wondering if you could put out submission calls for people that have a desire to tell their story and for me to write it. And they did. And I got good responses from it. That's wonderful. I love that you took this very open and curious and kind of research-based approach to it. And I can relate to a lot of it because those are a lot of the same observations I had when I started Drive Spice as well as a podcast for Asian American mental health is that I knew these conversations were happening and a lot of it was kind of like whispered or behind closed doors or even a lot of the examples of Asian excellence that were being amplified kind of like swept over the struggles or the mental health sacrifices really or conditions of many of the individuals who had to go through that to get to where they were today. And so I definitely see that in your book and in your journey and it really resonated with me as well. And I wonder, you know, did you form like a bond with any of the people that you interviewed or spoke to or is there a particular story or a person that, you know, you just kind of keep with you in your heart as you kind of move about your life? 
I would say that of the 11 individuals I spoke to, it's like we're all connected on things such as social media and stuff. And I, we did connect when we spoke to each other. I would say that there's two that I, I feel that I speak to a bit more than the others, though. And I think it's because they do work in the community surrounding advocacy around South Asian mental health as well. And the first one is the first one in the story, Dimple, actually. In Chicago. Oh, my gosh. That story was so powerful. I legit started crying like at my kitchen table when I was reading it. It was, you know, these topics are heavy and they're tough, but they're so necessary. But, you know, as someone who has experienced depression, as someone who is a mother, it was very triggering for me in that way where I was just like, oh, my gosh, like I can't imagine this happening and the pain that everyone went through. And, you know, even when they were trying to look for marriage partners, having that, you know, used against them, that was just, that just really got me. I was just like, wow, that's so painful. But I agree with you that it's really inspiring when we see that people kind of turn this pain into purpose and use it to heal the community. And I'm wondering, for me at least, I find some healing from doing this work. I'm wondering for you, does it bring up an additional layer of like healing or closure or, you know, do you feel like that's part of your mental health journey as well? Yes, it did give me a therapy in the sense that it taught me that there's other people like me, a.k.a. other South Asian folks that have struggled with their mental health, that have felt isolated from the community or communities that they've been around and have always been taught to sweep it under the rug unless it's severe or life-threatening and at some point decided that that mindset is not going to work for them and they want to change that. So it gave me a new community in a sense when it came to that. And especially being that I wrote the book in a time when finally things are starting to shift in South Asian culture and more people are starting to talk about it. And the other reason that I'm still, I'm quite connected to Dimple other than the fact that we're basically neighbors being that she lives in a state right next to me is that I put her story first with a purpose because I felt as though it was sad, but also highly meaningful. And speaking to people like her gives me the courage and the strength to continue to build up this courage to continue telling my story bit by bit. And Karandeep is the other person that I'm in touch with a bit more, the person who bipolar and schizophrenic um, that the reason she inspires me so much is because I've come to realize that um, when it comes to mental illness, that certain conditions are more looked down on than others in the okay. sense that things like anxiety and depression, everyone can relate to things like schizophrenia or bipolar just are off-putting and scary to people. And I admire her strength to be able to tell her story publicly, not just because of what she has and the weight it carries, but also coming from that double layer of coming from a South Asian family. Of course, I agree. I think there's an extra layer of bravery and um, sourcing it from collective wisdom and strength from our community only helps really, you know, stop the stigma of talking about mental health, whether it's mental illness or mental wellness or mental conditions, all of it. It's all very important to this conversation. As a South Asian woman, uh, Obviously, you know, expectations around gender and social norms can feel very overwhelming and kind of rooted in sometimes outdated cultural narratives about the role of women in society, work, home, everywhere. Can you share what's helped you 
in terms of empowering you to shift or challenge this narrative and advocate for yourself as well as others? I would say that number one, growing up as a kid, I think one way that I was, another way I was different that I didn't mention to you before was that supposedly from a really young age, I learned how to argue like four or five. <laughs> I love it. I think it's because I think that I was seen as argumentative and defiant, whereas what it really was, was that if I was being told to do something, I wanted to feel logically connected to why I was doing it. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And I think the difference between me and neurotypical kids that I've seen is that neurotypical kids initially do what's asked for them. And then at a certain age, then where they start to grow up is when they start to say, okay, this needs to make sense to me if I'm going to do it. This doesn't make sense to me. I'm going to do something different. Whereas that was kind of my attitude from day one. Yeah. Yeah. I so love that's it. number one, my different yeah. way of learning and processing, I think gave me the pre-start to becoming somewhat of a game changer when it comes to mental health. And then also I would say the other piece is having written this book and meeting, as I said, people who are quote unquote like me mm -hmm. and therefore not feeling so lonely in this fight and ha having other community that have the same mission as me that I can collaborate with and make a greater impact with. I think cultivating that skill from a young age is, is hypercritical. And I think for everyone, neuro divergent or not, it's very important. I'm a parent of two daughters and this is something that I'm very aware of because I can see that this starts so young about what makes a good child and what makes a bad child and challenging um, authority uh, generally is not favored um, for children. And so it's something that I'm, you know, actively deconstructing all the time. And I think it's really wonderful that you cultivated that at a young age and I think it's going to continue to serve you well. Hey everyone, we're going to take a quick break and return after this brief message. We all know how important mental health is, but it can be hard to know where to start or how to create a mental health practice that works for you. Mental health affects us in the workplace, at home, and everywhere in between. Americans are facing record amounts of anxiety, depression, and panic attacks since the onset of the pandemic. Younger generations like Gen Z and millennials are feeling the most traumatized by events of the last 20 months. From pandemic stress, employee burnout, hate crimes, mass shootings, and the daily struggle to balance work and family life, the mental load of being human has never felt more crushing, especially for underrepresented identities. For example, Asian Americans are more prone to mental health issues, yet three times less likely to seek help than Caucasian counterparts. That's why I created Thrive Spice Media, a mental health podcast and platform. My mission is to normalize mental health journeys, provide a safe space to share resources and stories, and promote a more inclusive world that centers intersectional communities, including women of color, AAPI, BIPOC, and LGBTQIA communities. Lately, I've been getting some requests from companies, especially ERG groups, that focus on affinity groups like AAPIs, BIPOC, and queer communities for speaking engagements and mental health workshops. I'm thrilled to share that I'm now offering mental health masterclass workshops for corporations and groups. It's a 60 to 90 minute interactive mental health workshop hosted by me, either virtually or in person, specifically customized to your organization's needs. We give participants a mental health toolkit to manage things like stress, anxiety, depression, and talk about hot topics like racial trauma, imposter syndrome, negative self-talk, social media, burnout, and more. 
The mental health toolkit includes data, exercises, resources, and practical frameworks to create and implement a mental wellness routine. And I also include a Q&A session. 100% of previous attendees said they would recommend the event and podcast to a friend and said they left feeling empowered, validated, and informed. If this sounds like something you or your organization could benefit from, or you're curious about learning more, please go to www.thrivespicemedia.com for more information. Back to our conversation. What are some ways we can be more inclusive and mindful of those who are neurodivergent in our work and in our personal lives, in our communities? So I guess it depends what your definition of neurodivergent is. I think from what I understand, it started off talking about neurodevelopmental disorders such as autism, ADHD, dyslexia, dyspraxia, and VLD. But then also I've heard people that are like bipolar identify as neurodivergent. So maybe neurodivergence and mental health are all under one umbrella based on how you're talking about it. And if that's the case, I think that we are again in a time where things are slowly starting to change in that um, employers, especially since the pandemic, are becoming a bit more sensitive to people when it comes to their mental health, when it comes to things like hybrid work days, allowing mental health days off, um, allowing like employee assistance plans to seek things such as therapy and counseling. So we need to continue on that, but we still do have a long way to go. And I think that um, education around this needs to start earlier, which I think is slowly starting to change in the school systems. So as I said before, being that I'm a 90s baby, the mindset when it comes to disorders and disabilities and special needs is you have either you have ADHD or cognitively or intellectually disabled or you're okay, in a sense. (laughs) So I think that because Things such as gender, such as ethnic background and the model minority myth held me back from being diagnosed both by academics, both in the school system as well as in my family. So I think more education around what different conditions could look like outside of the stereotypical norm needs to be pushed out there. I think while I don't think it's good to overdiagnose people, I also don't think that the solution is to only give precedence and diagnosis to the quote unquote severe disorders or the ones who are struggling most outwardly. Mm. I think the solution is to develop more accurate diagnostic tools. I think that's such a great idea. And I I can um, I really think that neurodivergence is really the next frontier of mental health in terms of developing own awareness and education, as you said, around what does that look like? What does that feel like? What are some assumptions or stereotypes that people have about you that you'd like to debunk or common, you know, things that happened to you or said to you that, um, yeah, would you'd like to challenge or correct? So I talked a little bit earlier about how things like having social anxiety and being an introvert made me think initially and made others probably around me think that I can't. Things like dancing isn't my environment. That's something that I've obviously challenged and done quite well. Um, I think that the model minority myth prevented me from getting professional help that I needed for my struggles. So when it came to my social emotional learning struggles, as well as academic struggles in school, the problem I had issues with things such as being messy and disorganized, not following directions, needing instructions repeated a lot, and missing assignments. Um, So I have highly educated parents, which thankfully got me through school when it came to giving me the one-on-one help that I needed to succeed. But also I was shamed a lot, both in the school system as well as 
my family. And I think that has to do with the model minority myth for why um, maybe my family wanted to be in denial and not seek help or everyone's just so used to a neurodivergent child being a male and who either has language difficulties or disrupts the class all day long. And if you don't fit that mold, then your issues are self-correctable. Interesting. Interesting. Do you feel like that's kind of rooted in maybe ADHD being kind of the first of the neurodivergent spectrum to kind of gain a public stage, maybe even like back in the 90s or early 2000s? Yes, I think it has to do with the surge of cases like several years ago, as you said, and with primarily males getting diagnosed with it and people getting wrongly diagnosed with it as a result and over-medicated with it. Um, and I think that, um, and then same, and with autism, despite overwhelming studies showing that females definitely have it too, that boys continue to be overdiagnosed or be diagnosed more than girls, I should say. Interesting. Do you feel like it presents differently across genders or is it simply a stereotype that is incorrect? So from the things that I've heard, um, some people have suggested that females are more image conscious and better at masking, quote unquote, mm -hmm. and act out less. When it comes to ADHD, they might um, maybe I think some suggest that females have the inattentive type more. And obviously the inattentive type is more um, it's less obvious than the hyperactive type, because I think that this goes across all disorders, that if you're not directly inconveniencing someone else, you're labeled as, quote unquote, non-severe or high functioning and therefore aren't taken seriously. Interesting. Yeah, those are such salient points. And I do think it, it does speak to kind of these um, stereotypes or expectations of women and, and gender does play a role. What helped you kind of accept love and appreciate yourself? as the unique, wonderful person you are? I would say that it's definitely a journey that I'm still working towards. However, I would say that things such as being in a good environment in terms of being around the right people, both in terms of your family, your friends circle, as well as your employment circle is very helpful too. I would say that in terms of being around people who accept and love your quote unquote quirks or differences and who you can give that same thing to in return. Being able to get um, a diagnosis. I know that the stereotype or the typical mindset is when people get diagnosed with something or have a child that gets diagnosed with something, they see a life sentence in the dark. Mm -hmm. Whereas I had zero diagnosis until I was a grown up and I see any diagnosis as a flicker of light in that dark, as an opportunity to learn more about myself why I do the things I do, why I struggle the way I struggle, why systems may not be designed in a way to support me and hopefully change that so that it does support me as well as individuals like me and to be able to find those support systems that do just that. I so admire that narrative because I feel like you're really flipping something that's been viewed as negative and as you said, kind of like a death sentence or something that to be deeply ashamed about into something that's actually a beacon of light into understanding yourself understand and loving yourself really right because it's just understanding your quirks and what makes you wonderful and different and i think that's really uh, another sign of resilience that i really congratulate you on because i know it's Thank not, you. not easy to do given everything out there and one of the reasons i wrote the book is that you'll see that even though 
when it comes to mental health disorders, they're not considered quote unquote fixable. And I don't know if I may have accidentally conveyed that in some of my stories, but I'm hoping that as a result of reading my book, it gives more people hope in and then thereby destroys the stigma where people, maybe parents or something reading it, drop the mindset that they should avoid sending their child to a counselor or a psychiatric evaluator solely to avoid slapping a label onto them. A hundred percent. I really feel that that is also intertwined with a lot of the South Asian attitudes around, okay, if we don't label it, it doesn't exist because living in denial is easier sometimes, but then really the only person who's hurting and in pain is the person who needs help. So that's really the tough part about it. Um, I know you hate small talk, but I'd love to just incorporate a couple of questions just for our listeners to help to get to know you a little bit better for you to just kind of share some things that are bringing you joy in your life. What is your Thrive Spice? Something that helps you cultivate joy and peace and power and self-love in your own mental health journey? Since I've tried almost everything under the sun, I don't think that I can tell you just one. I think I've done a pretty good job conveying how dancing is one of those spices. Um, I would say another Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I didn't talk much about that, but that's another thing I just kind of fell into and I enjoy doing. So the way I learn it is more for in a self-defense format than a fighter format. And I would say that it's my Thrive Spice because it gives me more confidence. It shows me that even though I'm this five foot tall, 115 pound Indian girl, that that doesn't mean I'm not capable of carrying myself and defending myself. Amazing. I love Um, another one of my Thrive Spices is I'm one of the few people I know who has benefited from both Eastern and Western medicine. And I see them as equals too. anything that helps me. I see I'm proud about, despite the fact that other people may say that it's something you shouldn't talk about. So I have benefited from psychiatric medicine in the past, as well as various Eastern remedies, such as I have a very precise diet that I follow, as well as supplements that I take. From time to time, I engage in Eastern remedies. I engage in things such as detox treatments in dietary and holistic centers, for example. I get a massage like one to two times a month to help with my attention. I get a facial maybe a few times a year. So a lot of things. Great. Yes, it does take a lot. And I love that you've explored so many modalities and also embraced East and West. We don't have to choose. We can pick what we like. And I'm curious, you know, what kind of Eastern methods or modalities have you been, you know, you mentioned like holistic. Do you mean like Ayurveda or is there something else that um, you mean? So, for example, every morning when I wake up before I go to work, I spend about 10 minutes in my bed doing pranayama breathing exercises, which stems from yoga, Mm -hmm. both fire breathing followed by alternate nostril breathing. And I find that it de-bloats me and also kind of wakes me up a little um, to go to work every day. Mm, I love that. Um, So another one, when I was suffering from low thyroid a few years ago and I lost some hair, one good important thing I did was see a vital nutrition center and get a hair mineral analysis done to see what I'm deficient in. Interesting. And I didn't sign up for their detox program, but that helped me to shift my diet and it helped me to implement supplements that helped to address some of those deficiencies. In quarantine, I hired a personal trainer because I was having some weight gain. And this trainer introduced me to an app called MyFitnessPal, which you enter goal weight and then they tell you what macros to hit 
how many macro calories to eat per day. The moment I started obeying what that app said, the extra pounds started coming off and I still use it from time to time. But that taught me how to eat, not just healthily, but in the right proportions. Mm. And after a few months doing that, I intuitively just gauged an ability to eat more balanced and I've kept the weight off ever since. And then I mentioned massage. I do at least one time massage a month. Um, to help my tension. I have hypermobility syndrome, which is just a fancy way of saying that I'm double jointed. Oh, okay. So when your joints are loose and your muscles have to work harder to like maintain a proper posture and stuff like that. So massages also followed by weekly Pilates sessions are helping me immensely with that pain. Wow. Wow. You've developed a very well put together routine and I definitely aspire to have that. That's amazing. And I love that you've really incorporated so much into it. What's something about South Asian culture that gives you joy or a sense of pride? Or do you have a favorite like Daisy celebrity that you look up to or find inspiration from? I would say that in my bicultural journey, in terms of being able to balance two cultures, some things that I felt particularly drawn to in Daisy culture are some of the Ayurvedic as well as traditional vegetarian recipes that I implement in my diet. And then in terms of celebrities, I would say that Padma Lakshmi is one that I like. Kamala Harris is one that served as a role model for me at the risk of sounding overly political. Not at all. I would say that um, while I have a willingness to admit that I don't agree with every decision she's ever made, I would say that seeing an Indian female run for president and even just work in politics as a senator that gets to make it big and actually be on TV for the work she does um, inspired me in that um, growing up, I didn't have that representation in terms of everyone in my family was like a doctor, engineer, software programmer, whereas I liked writing and it made me feel lonely. And I think that when people see these South Asian um, women and men being able to do different things, it'll inspire other people in our community that they can be the same way too. So outside of the celebrity world on Instagram itself, I've met and seen profiles of so many South Asian celebrities doing things such as opening up businesses for everything from counseling to hair care to cooking to clothing and all beyond that, which I would have never expected when I was little. And that's something that makes me smile for sure. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. I think it's wonderful to see how representation is really expanded and it's hard for us to be what we cannot see. So when we are able to see others who look like us or have similar journeys, it's really powerful. So I'm also, you know, Padma and Kamala fan and I think that it's really wonderful that um, they continue to kind of like break the box of what it means to be, you know, a South Asian, as you said, bicultural woman in this country today. Um, we both grew up in the Midwest. And I'm curious, do you think there is a difference between Midwestern South Asians or Daisies versus East Coast or West Coast Asians? How has growing up in the Midwest impact your lived experience? I would say that ethnic background aside, um, when it comes to different regions of the U.S., comes different cultures in a sense. I think that Southern culture is vastly different from Midwest culture and Eastern and Western culture, for example. And these things definitely impact people in terms of their likes, their dislikes, their interests, what language and lingo they use, that type of thing. And then it can also perhaps have an impact in this context 
based on, you know, how much exposure to other fellow South Asians and community you received and the messages that drilled into your head, both good and bad about your native culture. Totally, totally. Yeah, for me personally, um, there was a small community in the Midwest, but it was very much, um, you know, and I know this is reflected in Desi culture too, but like, what will people think? Or, you know, sometimes there's a lot of gossip and there's a lot of judgment and competition amongst, you know, there are benefits, obviously. It's great to have that community as a resource. And I'm still friends with some of the people to this day that I grew up with in that community. But at the same time, did you experience any of that where it just felt like a little bit, you know, judgmental or you felt like some things were being perpetuated that weren't healthy? Yes. And I think that that's a common theme found in my book, too, regardless to where people came from. I, along with they, were taught that public perceptions incredibly important growing up. And I do think that that's one thing that contributes to the mental health stigma. And then also it could put some notions in people's heads that the needs of the family or the desires of the family for you are more important than that of what your intuition is telling you you need, for example. And I grew up in a white American suburb and in the most segregated city in the entire United States, too. So I had little to no Indian fellow Indian children in my school. And however, there's like a Hindu temple from which um, there was like a circle that we would all know each other. And maybe earlier when I was growing up would spend more time than when as I got older, for example, I think that um, so developmentally, I was taught that bicultural children or children of immigrants initially may start to reject their native culture growing up. But then in younger adulthood and beyond be like, okay, I want both cultures in my life. I want to balance both. And that's exactly what what happened to me. Yes, I can relate to that a lot. I think, you know, I've seen that journey play out for so many people and to some extent for myself in waves, like it can happen a number of times where I kind of go towards it and then, you know, I take a step back and then I go towards it again. And I think, you know, some, a narrative that's been kind of amplified throughout this podcast is that Sometimes our cultural identity is fluid, just like, you know, gender and sexuality can also be fluid. And that's something that's completely okay. And we're, you know, we don't have to worry about being Asian enough or American enough or whatever it is. And that's the freedom that we should really seek for ourselves. I'm curious, you know, did you encounter any like religious stigma when it came to mental health conditions or neurodiversity? I don't know about so much about religious, but cultural, absolutely. Being that I was taught that public perception is extremely important and that I was taught growing up that I should tell other people that I have nothing short of straight A's, for example, in school, even though that was not the case. Mm. And I think that that also prevented me from seeing a professional for my struggles and that kind of stuff, too. Yeah. Well, you know, I guess it's so funny to me to hear that because I know that, you know, being that straight A student, that, you know, all-star Harvard, Stanford, Ivy League, there's so much pressure in that model minority myth. And part of us wants to believe that so badly for ourselves. But I do think there's other ways to define success for ourselves. And you certainly are a great example. I can see, obviously, you're highly intelligent and you are very accomplished and you know, you did it your way and you found a way to shine your light in a way that was specific to who you were and play to your own strengths. And I think that's so admirable. And I think that it's wonderful that you are speaking up on behalf of yourself and other South Asians and people who are neurodivergent. 
it's very important to keep uplifting this message and showing to your point that it's not, you're not alone and that so many others are going through this. I've found that in my journey as well. The more we talk about it, the more people come to us and say, oh, you know what? I've actually been going through this too, or I know someone has been going through this. And so it is very important to put that energy out there. Last question, uh, what's your favorite comfort food or favorite memory around food? I would say that my favorite comfort food, um, I'm big into chocolate. I've always been a chocoholic and I always have some chocolate right next to me at my desk every morning to eat. I figure why not do it in the morning rather than at night have some sugar intake and be awake all night. Good point. Good point. And what's something your friends say about you that no one expects from you? If I had to put it a certain way, I would say they would kind of call me, well, A, maybe if a person doesn't know me very well, they would be surprised to hear that I'm neurodivergent, but that's a given. Maybe another thing is that I'm an introverted extrovert. Oh, me too. Those are the best kinds of people. <laughs> uh, that's wonderful. And then do you have any resources that you would recommend for anyone who is kind of navigating this journey or curious about learning more about whether they may or may not be neurodivergent or if they could help someone who they know, friends or family who you know might be in need? I would say do as much self-studying as possible to learn about yourself as much as possible so you have all the tools to be and information to advocate for yourself the day that if and when you do find a professional and are able to be very direct about what it is you need, what it is you're struggling with. I love that. Thank you so much. And maybe try to find someone in your community, if possible, if that's what, what's right for you to be able to connect with and ask yourself also, how do you best learn and what type of an individual that I work with would I have the best chemistry with? Mm, I like that. That's great. It's like having an accountability partner in your journey. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Marnal. I really am inspired by a lot of the stories you've shared, not only in the book, but today here with us on the podcast. And I hope you continue to find the healing and support that's been helping you kind of be an inspiration and uplift an entire community. Uh, with your stories that you've shared and the wisdom from your own experiences. So thank you again. And I hope you continue to um, find the healing and care that you deserve. Thank you very much for having me on your show. I, I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much, Marnal. Take care. Thank you so much for joining us here today on Thrive Spice. If listening to our podcast helps you feel seen or heard, or you find yourself saying yes while you're listening to one of our podcast episodes, or you simply believe in our mission of breaking down the cultural and social stigmas that prevent Asian Americans from reaching their true potential when it comes to mental health, family life, and business leadership, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Consider booking a Thrive Spice Mental Health Masterclass Workshop or share a link to our podcast with a friend or family member who might benefit from being a part of our Thrive Spice community. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Thrive Spice, subscribe to our podcast, and be kind to your mind.